All right. So uh, before I before I jump in this morning to the message, uh, just real quick, I want to give you somewhat of a roadmap. I know things are obviously changing around here, uh, and uh, I just want to give you kind of a roadmap for the rest of the year. Uh, just so you'll have some kind of an idea of, of what we're going to be doing on Sunday mornings, uh, at the very least, the next several weeks. Uh, and honestly, that could change depending on what the church decides to do uh, in a couple of weeks uh, at, at the meeting on the 6th. But um, in the meantime, I, I try to be somewhat of a planner. Uh, so it, it, I put a little bit of thought into uh, into the rest of the year in the next uh, couple of months. And so here's what it's going to look like. Um Fall break is coming up for students and kids, uh, and so uh, that's coming in a couple of weeks. My family and I will be out of town on that uh, 6th of October. We'll be back the next Sunday, the 13th, but uh, we will be back on that October the 6th, or we will be out that October the 6th, which is why it was the it was the best time for the church to do the meeting to talk about the pastor position since I won't be here. Uh, so uh, this week and next week, we're gonna I'm going to preach to you about... Uh, about the one thing, it's a two-part series, uh, preach to you about the one thing that uh, stands above everything else, and that's Jesus. And so we'll, we'll talk about that the next uh, couple of weeks. But uh, that Sunday that I'm out, the 6th, Blake Shankle is going to come in and, uh, and fill in for me. Uh, and then on the 13th, what we're going to do for a good long while uh, through the end of November is I'll start a series on the attributes of God, because I really want us as a church to take some time and focus on exactly who God is. The best way to learn and grow closer to him is to know who he is through his attributes. And so that's what we're going to do all the way up through uh, the end of November, which will take us into Christmas as we start the uh, the first of December. So that work for everybody? Sound good? Okay. So, so go ahead and turn, be turning to uh, Colossians chapter one. That's where we're going to be at today. And as you're turning, I'll just real quick, failed to mention it um, when Marty was making his announcements, but uh Amanda Heath texted me this morning and said that, uh, you know, they obviously aren't here today, said they wouldn't be here because her aunt had passed away. So y'all remember her in your prayers and, uh, and her and the family. I know she'd been sick and she talked about uh, her aunt being sick. So uh, she did pass away, I, th- I think she said yesterday. So they had family coming in. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at uh, the truth about Jesus today. It's a truth that's uh, very foundational and it's very it's essential to our Christian faith. At, at the very most basic point uh, is, is this truth that we're going to look at today. So we're going to talk about who Jesus Christ is. Just exactly who is Jesus. And so if you're there, Colossians 1, let's all stand to honor the reading of the holy and perfect word of God. Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 15. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, 
Thank you so much for today, Lord. I just thank you for everyone in this room today, Lord, because as we'll see, every person in this room has a part that they play and they bring a part of the body to to this church. And so, Lord, um, I just thank you for everyone here. I thank you for this church uh, and this body of believers that you brought together. Uh, Lord, may we serve you. Uh, with humility. May we serve you with uh, with zeal, Lord. And I just uh, pray now for this time as we look into your word and, and I pray that we get a clear picture of exactly who Jesus Christ is. And through that picture, we come to know him and come to love him in an even more deep and more intimate way. Lord, I ask you to bless this time now. Fill me full of your spirit, Lord. Take me out uh, behind the woodshed. Just empty me of myself because that's not what's needed here today. But your Holy Spirit is what we need. And and so, Lord, I just ask you to speak through me now. It's in Jesus' most heavenly and beautiful name that we pray. And everybody said? All right. So let me start by asking you a couple of questions. And these these are the two most important questions that, that, that you ever will ever have to answer in your life. These two questions, you ready? Question number one, who is Jesus Christ? Question number two, do you know him? Those are the two most important questions you'll ever answer throughout the course of your life. Who is Jesus Christ and do you know him? And so why these, these questions are so important is because your, your, your destiny, your eternal destiny hang in the balance on these two questions. You can't be wrong about these two questions and be right with God. It's impossible. There's no middle ground. It's, it's all or nothing in regard to Jesus. Either you know Jesus or you don't, right? E- either you have a personal relationship with him or you don't. So, so these two questions on the backs of these two questions hang absolutely everything. Everything about salvation, every everything about the abundant life, everything about forgiveness of sin, everything about where you're going to spend eternity. These two questions are the most important questions that you'll ever answer. The heart of Christianity is, is Jesus, right? Christianity is Christ. And so to know Jesus, we've got to understand two things about him. And these two things are what theologians call the person and work of Christ. So uh, we'll, we'll have to understand who he is. We have to understand what he's done if we're ever going to know him in a personal and intimate way. And I know most of you who uh, who have uh, ever shared the gospel with uh, strangers and people that you don't know and just talked about Jesus with people that you don't know, you can attest to the fact that we hear all kinds of answers about who Jesus is when you ask people. They'll say that... Uh, that Jesus is the guy that they imagined him to be when they were kids. You know, the, the, the cosmic superhero up there granting wishes and, and making everything uh, about your life uh, exactly how you want it to be. Right. And then you have other people who are, who are like, um, who are like, uh, religious salespeople. They want, they want to give you a pep talk and sell you on your best life now. Right. That's, that's who they portray Jesus to be. Other people will say Jesus is what some sappy Christian song make him out to be. All right then then you've got um you've got the Jesus that's presented by the cults and the religious elite of the world Jesus who's good but he's not God Jesus is uh, is a role model he's a good role model but he's not the redeemer and so that's that's a Jesus that you'll encounter there's all kind of uh, of opinions that that floating around but the problem is is that if you believe in the wrong Jesus then you don't know him 
You have to know the right Jesus. It's extremely important for us to have an accurate understanding of who Christ is. So here in, in, in Colossians, in, in our text today, um, this, this came at a time that uh, Paul, Paul writes these words to, to the Colossians. And, and these very verses uh, are referred to as, as, the, uh, as, as the Colossian hymn is what these verses are referred to. It's really the first recorded hymn that we have in the early church, uh, which was more than just singing the Psalms. Uh, this was a time at the church in Colossae that, that there were false, there was false teaching coming in to the church. And really, wherever the church gathers, you're going to have false teaching coming in, right? It's, it's, the church always has to reinforce its walls against false teaching. Uh, it's going to come in. Wherever there's light, there's always going to be bugs. Wherever there's the light of truth, there's always going to be an invasion of error that tries to come in against it. And so it's no coincidence that, that, that every letter, every uh, New Testament epistle is written to counter false teaching. Every letter in, or every epistle encounters false teaching that was already coming into the church. And, and the church at Colossae here was, was no exception. There was what was called the, the Colossian heresy. And that's what Paul is combating here. Uh, in this letter, the Colossian heresy, what it was, it was mixed. It was legalism, philosophy, uh, mixed with some Christian verbiage, and it was all mixed together. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's what you get is the, uh, the Colossian heresy. In chapter two, and Colossians addresses it pretty much in detail. But the source of it, and, and what we'll really cover today, the source of it was a distortion of, of Jesus. They, they had a distorted view of who Jesus was. And so that's what, what was being taught was, was really a, a, an early form of Gnosticism. And I don't know if we've talked about Gnosticism here. Uh, Gnosticism uh, is uh, basically says that, that God's in heaven and, and, and we're here on earth. And in order to uh, for us to connect with God, then there needs to be uh, a series of emanations that's descended down from God. Uh, it's kind of like steps on a ladder that was created. There was this created order of angels uh, that came down from God to connect God to man. So, so our connection to God is through this created order of, of, of angels. This would be our stair step up to God. We'd climb these rungs. And of course, um, what was happening here is they were involved in an angel worship, uh, because of this. And, and so a lot of what Paul says here refers to that. And we're going to break it apart this morning and talk about it. Uh, but uh, their stair steps, they saw these angelic beings as being worthy of worship and it led them to be uh, preoccupied with angels. And so, and they saw Jesus as the greatest angel, uh, but he was just one more step on the ladder to them. Um, so Paul, at this time that he wrote it, he was, he was in Rome when he heard about this. He was, he was actually in prison when he heard about this and he hears about the angel worship. So he sits down and he, and he writes this letter and, and I love what he says. I love how he writes because before he even starts, um, starts to deal with uh, with the angel worship and the false teachings of this legalism and this philosophy and all that stuff, he drops his anchor right here. Uh, and, and what he does in verse 15, he says, look, we got to get one thing straight to start with. We Before we move on to anything else, we got to get one thing straight. Before we do anything else, we have to understand who Jesus is. And so uh, everything hinges on knowing who Christ is. Everything hinges on not only knowing who he is, but following who he is. And so that's what Paul does. He puts his anchor right here. And that's how we deal uh, ourselves. That's how we can deal with every other cult, every other uh, false religion uh, and false teaching out there. 
what happens is they, they miss it. They, they just like the, the Colossians were starting to do here. They miss it with the person and work of Jesus. That's, that's what happens. And so what we're going to look at here is absolutely essential because this, this is what separates us from the cults. This is what separates us from every world religion and every religious movement that's gone astray. You miss it at this point. You, you miss who Jesus is. You miss it at this point. Then your whole ship is gone. Stray. It, it's drifted. It's just gonna, it's gonna drift away in the, in the whole wide open ocean of uh, religiosity is what's gonna happen if you miss this point. So we gotta be like Paul right here in, in this letter. We gotta drop our anchors right here at this point because who Jesus Christ is, that's our cornerstone, right? That's, that's the very, very backbone of Christianity. And, and, and look, this isn't the only place that you're going to find in the Bible where the person and work of Jesus is laid out for us. But I really, truly believe that this is the most solidly worded statement that answers that question of who is Jesus Christ. And so to answer that question uh, for the next couple of weeks today and, and, and next week, we're going to dig into what Paul has written here. And we'll look at five words that will summarize the depth of these verses and what these verses are saying about Jesus. Every one of these words is essential to our understanding of who Jesus is, who the real Jesus is. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, first and foremost, and here's our first point, he is God. He is God. You got to get that first before anything else. Jesus Christ is God. And Paul says that in verse 15. He says it at the highest level. The first thing he does is, is to confirm the absolute deity of Jesus. He says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And there's, and there's no question as you, as you look back, if you would look back to, to grab some context in verse 13, uh, in verse 14 as well, it's clarified where, who the he, he is when he says he is the image of the invisible God. He is absolutely referring to the beloved son of God. That's the he. Verse 14, he says, in whom? So it's Jesus. Paul says that uh, it's explicit how he says it, that Jesus Christ is the invisible image or the image of the invisible God. That word image uh, in the Greek is the, is, is the Greek word icon, which is the exact same English word that we have, but spelled a little bit differently, but it's the exact same word icon. And, and, and icon means likeness or copy. So sometimes it, it, w it was meant uh, to, to be an imprint on a coin or a reflection in a mirror. That's how the word was used. And so that's saying that Jesus is the, is the perfect image and the exact likeness of God. But God's invisible, right? We can't see him. God is invisible. No one's ever seen him. Seen him. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. Or John 6.46 says not that anyone has seen the Father. First John 4.12 says no one has seen God at any time. So the question, what does God look like? What does God sound like? It's really simple. You, you encounter those questions and people, and people will ask those questions. Non-believers will ask them or even, uh, uh, baby Christians will ask that question, you know, newly converted Christians. Well, what does God look like? What is, what does God sound like? Cause you'll hear people say, well, God spoke to me. I heard God speaking to me. Well, what does he sound like? What did his voice sound like? Or what does he look like? Well, what God looks like, you can point people to Jesus to answer that question. Jesus is the, is the revelation and the representation of God be, to us because he is God in human flesh. He is God in human flesh. He is fully God and fully man. 
He was the God man. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So in no way did, did Jesus, when he came down uh, from heaven, when God bankrupted heaven and came down and, be, and was born of a virgin and, and took on the flesh of man, no way did he diminish any of his deity. In no way at all. He didn't give up any of his deity. What he did was assume, assume humanity. He took on humanity on himself. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. A couple other verses make it clear. I want you to note these verses. Uh, Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. The exact, the precise, the accurate representation of his nature. Now, now all of us, we're, we're made in the image of God, right? Every, every one of us is made in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 tells us, we're, that we're made in the image of God. But, but look. We're a train wreck because sin defiled and, and corrupted the image of God in us. We're a train wreck. But Jesus, he was born of a virgin, lived a, a sinless and, and perfect life without a sin nature. So he became the exact likeness and the perfect representation of the image of God. We remain, we were made in the image of God, but we're not the perfect representation of the image of God. Jesus Christ is. John 14, 8, Philip said, Lord, Show us the Father, and, and it's enough for us. So how did Jesus respond to that? What did he say? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. He said, yeah, I'll show you the Father, but here's what he said. The only, and, this, and Jesus was the only person in the history of the world that could have a- ever answered Philip like this. This is what he said. He said, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You saw it in the video before we before we started, and you've probably heard Buffy say it, and and you've heard other pastors say it. But it's a it's a quote, original quote of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says the there's only one three possibilities: either Jesus Christ is a liar or a lunatic or Lord. There are no other categories. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And we, as as followers of Christ, as as Christians, as as children of God, we believe because the evidence that's presented to us in the Bible, evidence that's presented to us in Scripture, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's God in the human flesh. Amen. So let me real quick, I'm going to try to drive this home a little bit more. Look at verse 19, down at verse 19 in Colossians 1. What I want you to see here, I want you to see this isn't something that, that I'm trying to force on the text. It's something that leaps off the page to us. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure. That means it was this was God's design. This is how he designed it. It was his purpose. It brought great pleasure to the heart of God for all the fullness to dwell in him. The word fullness, um, or the word, it's, it's plurio uh, in, in the Greek. It was a word that the Gnostics threw around in their teaching when they were talking about deity. And, and they said that deity was, was spread out among the different angelic orders. So, so the different angels had a little bit of deity. And man, we have a little bit of divinity in us. And so all of this is this stair step uh, to the effects, uh, uh, the stair step effect to the degrees of deity in angels and in man. And Paul says, nonsense. He says, anathema is what he says. He says in verse 19, all the fullness to dwell in him. 
meaning all the fullness of deity, all the holiness of the Father is in the Son. All the, all the sovereignty of the Father is in the Son. All the truth, all the power, all the grace, all the mercy that is in the Father is in the Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So he's co-equal and co-eternal to the Father. Now flip over to um, chapter 2. I want you to see this real quick. Chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. There's, there's no wiggle room in this statement, right? There's no middle ground. There's no way, no wiggle room. Colossians 2, 9. For in him, of course, we know who the him is. It's Jesus. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's an old hymn that says, um, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Christ laid a crown, uh, laid aside his crown for my soul. And that sounds good, but I want you to understand something. Jesus laid aside nothing. He laid aside nothing. He came to this earth as fully God and he took on the limitations of humanity and became a member of the human race, but without sin. So all the fullness of deity in bodily form. So what's the implications of Jesus coming and being fully man and fully God? What's the, what's the implications of it? Well, number one, because of this, what, we, what he did at the cross has an outstanding and amazing value. What he did at the cross, and it was something that only God could do. It was something only God, it was way, way beyond what any prophet could do. It was, it was way beyond what any apostle could do. It was way beyond what any, the best man that ever lived in this world, way beyond what he had the capability uh, to do. At the cross, Jesus Christ was God on the cross, dying in our place, suffering, bearing our sin, and making an atonement that only God could make on the cross at Calvary. And look, that, that speaks volumes, y'all, to, to what our response should be to him. That speaks volumes to what our response should be to him. Because when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of God to us. And when Christ provides, he provides out of the abundance of what belongs to God. Amen? So that's where it begins when we start to look at who is Jesus Christ. It, it begins because G Jesus Christ is God. Look at the end of verse 15. It says, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that he was the, uh, a created being. Because what's happened is the cults have taken this and, and, and they, they jumped on it because of what it says and they've taken a wrong turn. They see this and say, wow, Jesus, Jesus was created. Now, verse 16 says, verse 16, the next verse says, Jesus has created everything. And, and it's all by him, from him, through him, and to him. He didn't create himself, right? What this is actually saying, the firstborn of all creation, is that he has all the rights that belong to a firstborn child. And if you took down and study Scripture from the very beginning, especially in the Old Testament, the firstborn child was the heir to everything. He was the heir to absolutely everything. So this has nothing to do with, with being uh, about chronologically born first, because we know Israel... Is called the firstborn nation, right? But we also know that when God chose Israel to be his chosen people, there were already other nations on this earth that have been created. It had nothing to do with Israel being the first nation created. It means that, that God's covenants would come through Israel, right? For, it means that the Messiah would come through Israel. The truth of scripture would come through Israel. 
So the firstborn of all creation, uh, you can you can see it, Psalm 89, uh, 27. It says, I shall make my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalms 89, 27. So Jesus, in other words, has all authority in heaven and on earth. Just like the firstborn child would receive and inherit from, from his father, God has given to Jesus, his son. So God has given to God. Does that make sense? God has given to God. God the Father has given to God the Son all the authority in heaven and on earth. So that's where it begins. It begins with God. And if we miss this, if we miss it here, every other step that we're going to talk about from here on out is lost. If we miss the fact that Jesus Christ is God, then everything else is lost. Anything else that we say about Jesus is corrupted if we miss this point. But if we're right here, then we can move on to the, to the other words that I want to jump off out of this text when we look at who Jesus is. So Jesus is God, number one. Here's the second point. He is creator. He is God. He is creator. Verse 16, sets, Paul sets the, uh, the, the, the creative power of Jesus. He says that, 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 he says that, that everything in the universe, all that's here, all that's in the universe, is by him, through him, and for him. Kind of sounds like a Romans eleven thirty six from for from him and through him and to him are all things. So when you think about it, there's nothing in this universe, in this world, absolutely nothing that's outside of verse sixteen. The entire universe, everything that has ever been or will ever be, is contained in verse sixteen. There's not one single speck of creation that's outside of this verse. And it says it's by him. That word by literally means and can be translated in him. So for in him, which means that the scope of creation, in other words, he didn't, he didn't sub it out to another contractor. He didn't sub creation out to another contractor to do the work. It's, it was all done with his hands. It was all done by his words. Right, so creation wasn't outsourced. He was he was the one in Genesis one who says, "Let there be light," and there was light. For by him all things were created, both in in the heavens and on earth. So when he says the heavens, he's he's talking about the universe. He's talking about the planets. He's talking about the stars, the galaxies, this angelic realm uh, that we've talked about. He, when he says on earth, he's referring to specifically this planet. The oceans, the continents, the mountains, all the land, the trees, the plants, the animals, humans. He said, he, that's what he's talking. Everything has been made by Christ. He says, visible and invisible. So visible is the, the physical world that we see, that we live in, that we can touch and we, and we live in and, and see. The invisible world is the spiritual world that we can't necessarily see. So and then he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And so those there, this is interesting, those there are, are those subcategories of that angelic order that we were talking about earlier. All right, so Paul, what he's doing here is he's beating this point into the Colossians because they had begun to, to worship angels at this time. And so he's making a statement to, to beat into their head that, that, that because they had been drawn into this idolatry and they were becoming preoccupied in worshiping these angels, uh, Paul is affirming the truth of who Jesus is. He says that... Uh, that, that you're, what you're doing is you're, is you're, he created the very thing that you're worshiping, right? These angels that you're now worshiping, Christ created them. Why would you worship a created being when you ought to be worshiping the one that created them? Why would you worship what he's made when you should be worshiping the one who spoke it all out of nothing? 
That's the point here. And then he says, all things have been created through him. So that's saying that, that, that Jesus, he's the, he's the mediator of how creation happened. He's the one that caused it. It all came through him. And then look, he says at the end, and for him. And that means everything that's been made has been made for his glory, for his own pleasure, for his own purposes. It's all about him. Ain't a thing in this world got to do with us. We try to make it about us. We worry about our own happiness or what we want to do, or I don't feel comfortable doing that, or I don't want, it don't matter. It's all about the glory of God. But just because, just, just like the fall, the reason that the human race fell was because the first created people Rob God of his glory and desire to receive the glory of God. Every one of us do that every day of our lives. We rob God of his glory, but it's all about him. It's for him. That's what the text says. So the one that made it, the one who created it, designed it for his own purpose. And that should speak to us. We should, we, we should fall on our face when we understand that, that, that he designed it for his own purposes. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't create ourselves. We're not the, the product of society or culture. As, as much as, as, as psychologists wants to, would, would tell you that, uh, well, this person's a product of their society or a product of their environment. No, we've been made by Jesus Christ. We've been created by him. He knew us and knit us together in the very womb of our mothers. That's why abortion is every single case of abortion, all abortion is an attack on the masterpiece of the design of Jesus Christ. He knit us together in the wombs of our mothers. I don't care the reason for the abortion, and, and I'll argue with you till I'm blue in the face about it. There is no good reason to abort a child. Jesus Christ doesn't make mistakes. J. Vernon McGee says this, he says, friends, this is God's universe, so you're going to have to do things God's way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have your own universe in which to do it. But you could just go and create your own universe and come up with your own rules and run it the way you want to. But until you're, but, but until then, you're in God's universe. You're on God's planet. You're breathing God's air. You're drinking God's water. It's all about God, not about you. All we have to do is function according to what the creator has designed. It's, it's, and that's basic, right? Is that not just, just basic? Just function and follow the order of creation that he's designed and stop trying to jack it up. But that's what we've done. That's what this, that we've done in this world is we've jacked it up. So Jesus is God. Jesus, Jesus is creator. And then in verse 17, we see that he is also sustainer. He is sustainer. So all he creates, everything that he creates, he sustains and maintains. In other words, he didn't just create it and then walk away from it, right? There are, um, oh, what is that? Uh, starts with a D. Who are those that believe that, that God uh, created, uh, created? They believe that God was created, but then he walked away from, from it, and he doesn't have any. Starts with a D. Uh I can't think of it. Deist, deist. Uh, so they believe that, uh, that God created the world, but then he just walked away. Scripture tells us otherwise. It says he sustains and he maintains because it says, verse 17, he is before all things. Pretty straightforward. He, exi he existed 
before the creation of the world. He's pre-existent, right? He's the eternal God. He's the eternal creator who's before all things. Micah 5, 2 says it this way. It says, his goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. So in other words, he stepped out of eternity and into time when he was born in Bethlehem. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, which means that before time began, Christ was already in existence. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So that's an important statement to understand. Paul's driving it home that, that Jesus isn't a created being. Jesus wasn't created. He's the creator. He existed before all things. You can't be created if you existed before all the things or you would just be one more thing that, that had been created. But scripture says that he existed before all things, so he is not created. Then it says at the end of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. So you know what's keeping the, the world from blowing up? You know what's keeping the earth in rotation and on its axis? What's keeping the laws of gravity? Right. It's the creator who's sustaining all things. He has the whole world in his hand as the song goes. I just can't carry a tune in a bucket or I would have sing that little ditty for you. But uh, my wife says I'm tone deaf. And I am. But anyway, he's, he's sustaining and maintaining not only the world, but he's sustaining and maintaining your life, too. Right. You think he's you think he's qualified to keep up with your life? You think he has the qualifications necessary to keep you? You think he, he knows what's best for you? You think he knows what's going to happen tomorrow? You think he can make the right calls and make the right judgments for our life? He's holding and sustaining and maintaining absolutely everything. He has the whole world in his hands. The nation's just a drop in the bucket. He's the sustainer of absolutely everything. All right, and so there's a, there's a fourth key word I want us to look at. And this last one, it, it really touches at the heart of who Jesus is. All right, and, and if I were to tell you today and go through this list and tell you who Jesus is and leave this one out, it'd be incomplete. All right, so this is not as important as Jesus is God, but this is just as important, and, and it's necessary for us to understand this because this, this is the very heart of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Verse 18, and as I was reading through this, it was really hard to know where to stop. But uh, I think it goes all the way through verse 20. But, but here Paul is introducing the lordship of Jesus. Now, you don't see the word Lord in the text, but the truth of lordship is in every line and every phrase here. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. It's good for us to know our place, right? Good for us to know where we stand with God and what our place is. And, and, and we're, we're the body of Christ. And some of us have, have been sovereignly placed by God into this body and into his body as an elbow. Some of us have been placed by God as a foot. Some of us are a hip. Some of us are a toe or an ankle. Some of us smell like a foot, uh, Noah. Uh, but, but we, we all have a place in the body of Christ that God has called us to be and assigned us to be 
uh, as Lord. So we're given different gifts and we're put into different opportunities and it's all by his design. None of us are self-contained, right? We all need each other. Every one of us needs each other. The hand needs the foot. The foot needs the elbow, right? But there's only one head. There's only one head. The head communicates the direction and the decisions. So the entirety of life is coming from the head, the headship of Christ, right? Meaning that, that he is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of our lives. He controls every part of the church and every part of our individual lives. There, there's no part of our lives that, that is separate or that is not under the Lordship of Christ. Our personal life, our, our church life, our family life, our work life, our, our hobbies, our recreational life, every bit of that, every part of our life is under his lordship and, and his head is our head. Jesus, he gives us grace. He gives us, he gives us direction. He gives us power. He gives us wisdom. And, and everything that we need in our life is flowing from the headship of Jesus. It says he is the beginning. The beginning of what? Yeah, yeah. And in context here, he is the beginning of the body. He is the beginning of the church. It really goes back to eternity past, and it speaks of the fact that, that we were chosen in Christ. We were chosen, and our names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. He's the beginning of it all. So how do you explain the unity within our church? Right here at Crossway, how do you explain the unity in our church? It's because we're people who are at peace with each other, right? We're at peace with each other, and we're, we're people that are at peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore, right? We're not his enemy. We are believers in Christ. We're at peace with God, and because we're in this body, we're at peace with one another. So how do you explain that? Is it because of this building we're sitting in? No, no. Is it, is it because of who the pastor is? No, it's not. Why? It's because we're under the headship of Christ and we submit and yield to him first before anything else. And so if there's ever any division in this church, if there's any any division in our body, it's going to be because one of us is no longer under the headship of Christ. That's where division comes from. We're not listening to Christ. We're listening to ourselves. Right. We're listening to our hearts. The scripture says our hearts are, will deceive us and our hearts are wicked above all else. We cannot listen to our hearts. We cannot listen. We have to listen to him through his word. He is the head. Christ is the head. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that he is the firstborn from the dead. So it's the same word firstborn that was in verse 15, and it has the same meaning here. Uh, it, this makes the point even more clear to us. It's, it's not saying that, that Jesus was the, the first ever raised from the dead. That's not what it's saying. There were people raised from the dead in the Old Testament, right? Jesus himself actually raised someone from the dead or people from the dead, not just someone. He raised people from the dead himself. There were people that were raised before that. It's a not, not a chronological sequence, but it has everything to do with the prominence. It's saying that all of those who have ever been raised from the dead, of every person that's ever raised from the dead, Jesus is the superior one. He is the firstborn of the dead. Verse At the end of verse 18, he says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You see that? First place in everything. 
So he gotta, he's gotta have first place in our families. He's gotta have first place in our marriages, first place in our professions, in our jobs, in our time, in our love, in our conversations, in our hobbies, first place in, in our, in, in our children's athletics, first place in what we watch, in the music we listen to, first place in, in our worship, first place in missions, in ministry. He has to have first place in absolutely every aspect of our life. And so you know what? Right here today, Crossway Baptist Church, understand this. We're not free to do church however we want to do church. We don't have that freedom. We're not free to reinvent the church. We're not free to, to, to invent new, a new way of doing church to reach this generation or to be relevant to this culture. That's not our prerogative. We don't have that right. Some churches make it their prerogative. Some places will, will do that, but it's not our right to do that because Jesus Christ is the head of our church. He died for the church. He is God, and he has told us in his word how his body should function. So we have no right to decide how we want to do church. We don't. Verse 20. As we move on, it says that, uh, and I believe that, that as I read this, like I said, I didn't know where it stopped. It's hard to tell where it stopped, but I believe he's still elaborating here in verse 20 on the Lordship of Christ. As you can see, as it transitions from 19 to 20, uh, the, the sentence continues. It's the same flow of thought out of verse 18. So we're still talking about the Lordship here. And it says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And that word reconcile uh, means uh, to, to change the status of something. Right. And so for the most part, when we see it in scripture, it's, it's used to, to, to talk about two enemies who are at odds with one another to reconcile their relationship back together. Uh, but at this point, I think it's general. It'll get more specific in verse 21 and 22. And it, but in verse 10, it, it says to reconcile all things to himself. So, so what are the all things? Well, in this context, I believe the all things, look at verse 16. By him, all things were created in both the heaven, the heavens and on earth. And later on, verse 16, it says, all things have been created through him. Verse 17, verse 17, he is before all things and in him, all things. So that's four times all things is, all things is mentioned in two verses, verse 16 and 17. And then in verse 18 is the alternate, alternate statement. He says everything. So he just said, all things, all things, all things, all things, everything. In verse 20, he says, to reconcile all things to himself. So I think the all things are all things, right? Absolutely everything. It's not teaching universalism, right, that, 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 that everybody in the world is going to wind up saved. That's not what it's saying. Verse 20, and it's a critical point for us to, to understand this, and I want you to get this, that through his obedience... Through the obedience of Jesus Christ, even being obedient unto death, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, whether in heaven or on earth. And get this, or under the earth. Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't want you to miss this. Get the, the, this is what this is saying. And this is, this is might be bigger than what we realize that it is, but, but through the obedience of Jesus to death at the cross, 
where he purchased the salvation of all of his people. It's by that final act of obedience unto death that God exalted him to heaven and gave him the name above every name. And at the end, all things will be reconciled to him in the sense that everything will be brought into submission to Christ. Everything will be brought into submission. Everything will rise up and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Not unto salvation, right? But, but uh, because a lot of people will, will, will admit and, and a lot of people will bow their knee to Jesus and admit that he is Lord, but they'll do it not unto salvation, but unto damnation. Every knee will bow. There's not going to be any atheist in that day. There will be no agnostics on that day. Jesus Christ is Lord, and every one of us in this room today will bow our knees to Christ. It's just a matter of when. But we're going to bow our knees to Christ at some point in time. It's just a matter of when. Either you're going to do it in this life, you'll bow to Jesus, you'll confess your sin, you'll receive his grace. Or on that final day, what you'll do is you'll bow your knee to Jesus, and you'll declare his lordship, and he will damn you and give you over to your desires. Either you confess him and bow your knees to him as Lord in this life, or if you do it in eternity after this life is over with, if you neglect him here in eternity, he's going to give you over to your very choices. What you chose here is what he'll let you continue to choose for all of eternity. He'll, he'll damn you to hell, and all the while he gives you over to your choice, you'll be declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. Next week, it's going to get even bigger. We'll, uh, that's why this is a two-part series. Uh, we're, we're going to jump into the fifth word. All right, next week, we'll look at verses 21 to 23. We'll look at that last word, and it's the last step next week. And, and look, let me tell you something. We're going to jump in the deep end next week, the deep end of the grace and mercy and the forgiveness that's flowed to us through Jesus. And Jesus, who we've seen, is, is, is God. He is uh, He's creator. He's sustainer. He is Lord. But next week... We're going to talk about Jesus as Savior. And that's that's where it's going to get good. Right. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about that next week. But as we as we close, I want to say that. Um, that obviously there's 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 there, there's no salvation in no other name. Right. There there is no other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. There's nothing in your head that can match what you just heard. There, there's no thought in your mind that will ever come up and rise up to what I've just told you. There's nothing that, that, that you can have that, that can uproot what's been presented today. There's not one drop of saving grace outside of Jesus Christ. So, so here's what, I, what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you that, to confess your sin today. I'm asking you to, to humble yourself and call upon the name of the Lord. And if you've never done so, this very moment, this very second, throw yourself into the arms of Jesus Christ and he'll receive you. He'll come. He, he's come to seek and save that which is lost. That's what, what the Bible says. He's come to seek and save that which is lost. He's come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. So come give yourself to Christ and be one of those that the Savior will receive with forgiveness and with grace. How, how, could you, how could you really live for anything else? Knowing who Jesus is, how could you live for anything else or live for anyone else?
How could you live opposed to the very purpose and the reason that you were made? Right? It's irrational for, for anyone to live for anyone else other than Jesus Christ. It, it would be insanity for you to live for anybody else or anything else than the authority of Christ. As the scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So live for Christ. That's what I want to leave you with today. Live for Christ. Believe upon Christ. Give your life to Christ. Adore him. Serve him. Worship him. Obey him. I pray that by his grace, he will direct every one of our lives. And so I'm going to pray now, and, and, and as I close in prayer, uh, the invitation song will, will begin. And as it plays, I, I just invite you all to come up. If you've Obviously, if you have questions about your salvation, uh, if you, we can talk about that. Or if you want to talk about baptism or membership, or if you just want to come to the altar and, 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 and fall down on your face and, and worship and prayer to, to Jesus Christ this morning, uh, I invite you to do that as the song plays. If you want to all stand... And I'll lead us in prayer, and uh, and then Braden will start the the invitation song. Um, let's pray, Father, Father God, we love you so very much, Lord, and we thank you right now for Christ. We can't see you, we can't see you. You're the invisible God, but but we praise you right now that you have made yourself visible to us in the image of your Son Jesus. Father, I, I pray that, that you would enlarge our hearts this morning. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts for Jesus, that you would give us illumination and understanding to know exactly who Jesus Christ is. But not only that we would know it in our minds, but we would know it in our hearts. And that, that, that as we walk out these doors this week, that, that we would purpose to pursue him even more than we ever have before in our life. God, I ask you to do this now. In the holy, righteous, and perfect name of Jesus. And everybody says...